0: In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the Three Jewels. Whatever the virtues in the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Om Manjushri, please accomplish this. Good evening, welcome, and happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> yeah. All right, Mary Beth. <laughs> Rabbit. No, a cat, sorry. <laughs> cat. <laughs> sorry I'm so late, my laptop just like not doing well. <sighs> Thought it had gotten better, but it's a recurring problem. Anyway, somebody say something just to make sure it's working. Boo. We can hear Boo. you. Something. Um, ah, oh, good. Thank you. Something is good. <laughs> hey, so uh, we're entering the wild and fun world of uh, mental factors. It's sort of like factorials in calculus, right? But it's a mental version of factorials. Does everyone know what factorials are? Anybody know what they are? Eric knows. What's a factorial? And Uh, how is it different from a permutations?
1: I think 5 factorial is 5 times 4 times 3 times 2 times 1. Is that right?
0: It sounds familiar. Yeah, I think so. It's like, uh, didn't we decide we were going to all look into how many gifts were given out on in the 12 days of Christmas song? Did anybody research that or figure that out? Okay,
1: must have been a different class. I don't remember
0: that. (laughs) We'll have to, we'll have to add that to the list. Sorry. Anyway, we're on page uh, 97 of the text, which is Chapter 7, and it's called, Distinguishing Mind and Mental Factors. And um, before we do that, We had broached on the exciting, really thrilling topic of the different objects of mind. And I finally found this wild chart that my dear friend Pete Bragg created. He created a whole bunch of visual charts. I got to start sharing them and using them because some of them are great. And uh, so, here goes. I circulated it also by email, but, uh, so here's the Datus, uh, sometimes translated as sources, right? It's one for each sort of channel, Uh, the eye, ear, nose, body, oh wait, sorry, taste, body, sensation, right? And there's the sense base, is the faculty, there's the object, and he gives an example using an apple, the redness, the sound it makes when you bite into it, the smell, the sweetness, and the skin, the texture. And then there's the consciousness that arises from the meeting of the two. These are all specifically characterized phenomena, so. Five times three, we have 15 of the 18 are specifically characterized phenomena. And then we have the mind. We have the uh, mental sense faculty, which I asked last week and somebody said the mind is the mental sense faculty. And when that comes in contact with mental objects, which happens frequently, as we all know, we have mind consciousness and uh, the mind is unique uh, in that it has three different types of objects, not just specifically characterized objects, but it has uh, the mind is a specifically characterized phenomena and the mind consciousness is. And it has three types of objects. It has the sense consciousnesses in that first moment of, uh, uh, in the, sorry, in the second moment of cognition, in a series starting with the uh, sense consciousness. The next moment is that it delivers that information to the mental consciousness, and the mental consciousness. Perceives the content of the sense consciousness as a specifically characterized phenomena, which means that it perceives it in a non conceptual direct manner. The mind also uh, can have mental factors as its objects anger, uh, attachment, and so forth. And the mind's favorite object is generalities. And let's see, in terms of this example here, what is, oh, here we have it right here is the answer, the generality of an apple. An apple is both a generality and a real apple is a specifically characterized phenomenon. The mind in some traditions is divided into three aspects the mental or sixth, sort of coordinating uh, consciousness, active consciousness, the afflicted or seventh consciousness, and then the all basis consciousness. The alia vijnana, which takes as its object the alia, and in doing that, it mistakes the alia for itself and gives rise to the seventh consciousness. The ways objects are taken by subjects. So, the object is the engaged object, like the actual thing that we're trying to get to is the engaged object. In this case of an apple, of eating an apple, the engaged object is the actual apple. Factual concordance has both of these objects. Oh, I'll come back to that. Uh, let's see. Then there's the appearing object, sometimes called an aspect. And it's what appears, it's what actually appears in the mind or to the mind, to the sixth consciousness from the other consciousnesses. So it's the aspect that is replicated in the sense faculty. Um, So the object, the sense object or image, is replicated... Uh, This is not actually correct. For a sense consciousness and a mental consciousness, the appearing object is the same. It's the aspect that manifests in the sense space. That's the appearing object. Then there's the referent object, which is uh, what conceptual consciousness refers to. So, in the case of thinking about apples, a conceptual consciousness is referring to apples as a generality. Whereas, uh, in the first moment of a sixth consciousness that arises based on the visual consciousness of an actual apple, the sixth consciousness, and that first moment does not have a referent object, it has an engaged object. Now, sometimes we'll also see a fourth object listed, which is, what is the apprehended object? So, the apprehended object is the object that's understood by experiencing, oops, the appearing object. So, the mind uh, the, let's see, the visual consciousness sees an apple in moment one, and then in moment two, the mental consciousness sort of sees the aspect of that apple in the same way that the vision, uh, the same aspect that the visual consciousness saw. The visual consciousness in moment one uh, sees the aspect of the actual apple cast by light reflecting off the apple and entering into the visual system. So that replication of the outer object in the, in the uh, sense faculty is the aspect. And the eye-sense consciousness takes its its appearing object in moment one, the, uh, the apple, and then in moment two, the uh, sense consciousness, sorry, the mental consciousness, takes the aspect appearing in the visual consciousness as its appearing object. In Moment 2, the the apprehended object of that experience is the actual apple. The apprehended object is the uh, actual, specifically characterized phenomena, apple. And then the mental consciousness, in uh, the second moment of mental consciousness, um, the appearing object is now a generality of apples or apple. So the the conceptual sixth consciousness is appearing object is no longer the aspect, but it's now the uh, idea of an apple that has, uh, been, um, generated by the experience of an actual apple. And so, the actually apprehended object in that moment of, first moment of conceptual consciousness is the idea of apples. And it seems repetitive, but there's actually circumstances where the appearing object and the apprehended object are different and uh i will try to think of an example but um
2: wouldn't that be like the rope and
0: the snake yeah thanks let's let's do that yeah so the in the case of uh the visual consciousness seeing a rope in the first moment the aspect of the rope is replicated in the visual consciousness in the in the visual sense space and the visual consciousness has uh, the aspect of a rope as its appearing object and a rope as its um, apprehended object. It apprehends a rope, the visual consciousness. Uh, But the visual consciousness doesn't really talk, so it's not able to really convey ropeness to the mental consciousness. And then in the next moment, the, the mental consciousness sees in a non-conceptual manner the same aspect of the rope replicated in the visual sense base and it apprehends the rope the specifically characterized phenomena. And then the next moment, the mental sense consciousness takes as its appearing object the um, idea of snake and apprehends a snake, and let's see, in that case, the appearing object and the apprehended objects are still both the same. I don't know, that. that's a good question. Um, we're going to come to a little chapter on it eventually in this book. And uh, hopefully that will clarify my lack of clarity. Yeah, page 247. So we're getting there. So let's let's uh, consider that uh, something to be resolved. And then, okay, so um, at least you have the framework of those different, uh, I'm not going to use the term aspects, but they're uh, different sort of, uh, Um, characteristics or factors involved in perception and cognition. Okay, so distinguishing mind and mental factors. Consciousness is explained above, has the nature being clear and aware on the basis of a primary function. Buddhist texts distinguish between a moment of consciousness, i.e. a mind, and the mental factors that are facets of that mind. As for the mind in general a long compendium of knowledge says what is posited as the aggregate of consciousness whatever is mind and mentality that too is consciousness so uh, the aggregate of consciousness uh, let's see m- includes mind and mentality um which is a little vague mentality you might think is mental factors but the mental factors are uh, the fourth skanda, the fourth aggregate. In Sanskrit, mind is chitta, mental factor. Mental mentality is manas. Sorry, so mentality is the activity of the mind. So whatever is mind and mentality is consciousness. Mind being the sense faculty and mentality being the activity of the sense faculty, i.e. thinking or perceiving mental perception. And consciousness is vijnana, and those three are equivalent or synonymous The three terms of different etymological interpretation. Mind refers to the six engaging consciousnesses within the continuum of a living being, which accumulate the latent potencies of experiences, habits, and so on. Mentality is that which functions to cognize its object, and consciousness is that which knows and differentiate, sorry, knows differentiated aspects of its object. Alternatively, mind connotes the accumulation of latent potency, sorry, and mentality connotes the basis, and consciousness connotes what is based on it. Um, So mind, as a non-material sense base, is the accumulation of latent potencies for mentality. And mentality, um... This little odd mentality connotes the basis, that's a little bit different, but... Mentality is that which functions to cognize its object. Consciousness is that which knows and mind refers to the six engaging consciousnesses. Okay, so that's how they're using it. Mind is the consciousness, mentality is the sense-space, and consciousness is um, the same as mind in being the six consciousnesses. So three synonymous terms, not very well, not very clearly distinguished here, but let's see how they're used in this context. And uh, they vary in different contexts, so it's not universally accepted, which is why I'm struggling with them. Also in the text of the Chittimasha School, which assert the notion of a foundation, consciousness, or store consciousness, there are contexts where the three, mind, mentality, and consciousness, are presented as having different reference. In such texts, mind refers to the foundation consciousness. So, uh presented as having different reference, meaning that the terms, the words, mind, mentality, and consciousness, refer to three different bases or types of mind, as opposed to a uh, reference in the way that it was used as an object of a conceptual mind. In the um, Chittamatra text, minds refers to the foundation consciousness, Ali Vijnana, that is the basis for the seeds of action. Mentality refers to the afflicted mental consciousness, the seventh, and uh, that grasps the foundation consciousness as me. And consciousness refers to the six engaging consciousnesses that cognize their respective objects. Now, an interesting point here is the way they describe consciousness here is I'm sorry, the seventh consciousness. They say the afflicted mental consciousness that grasps the foundation consciousness as me. And I said earlier that the foundation consciousness is uh, conscious of the foundation, and when it, it mistakes the foundation as uh, being its, itself, uh, as being an entity, it then gives rise to the Seventh Consciousness, which is a different way of interpreting the situation. And there are these different interpretations. And uh, it, it's, it's unclear in most texts the relationship between the foundation, the alaya, and the vijñana. Like, what is it when, when we say vijñana? it implies a consciousness. When we say manas um, which is the seventh consciousness, or or klesha, manas, or um, vijñana. Uh, uh, Mano vijñana is the sixth consciousness. Mano is the term mind, and when it joins, uh, is the term manas mind, which we've just seen, and when manas joins with uh, vijñana, which is consciousness. For the sixth consciousness, it's called mano vijnana, And so that's the sixth consciousness. And then the other consciousnesses are Chatur, is the Eye Consciousness and so forth. They each have their own names, which include vijnana, Chatur, vijnana, I believe is the Eye Consciousness. And so, um, what is it that the seventh consciousness is, has as its object? The five sense consciousnesses, their objects are quite clear, the sixth consciousness we just talked about has different, three different types of objects. But what is the seventh consciousness's object? And so here it's explained that the, the object of the seventh consciousness is the Alia Vijnana, is the eighth consciousness. So then what is the object of the eighth consciousness? These, those two, the object in consciousness, the the way that seven and eight are characterized is not a simple manner, and it's not standard in in all traditions, and uh, begs for clarity and further investigation, so hopefully through this we'll come to that. Then he quotes the Laka Avatara Sutra, which is considered by the Prasangakas to be a Chittamatra Sutra. The mind is the foundation consciousness. What thinks of that as me is mentality. That which apprehends objects is known as consciousness. So, in this scheme, the mind is the eighth consciousness. What th- thinks of the eighth consciousness as being me is. The seventh consciousness mentality, and that which apprehends various types of objects, is the sixth consciousness. In Asanga's Compendium of the Mahayana, he says, it is not correct to think, as this opponent does, apparently, uh, taken out of context, there was some opponent objection, but Asanga presumably responds, it's not correct to think that mind, mentality, and consciousness are synonymous. ...which is what the authors of this just said a couple of paragraphs ago. So already, you know, we're like in the realm of... Uh, ...definite confusion. <laughs> um, but these are not synonymous with merely being with merely the words being different, because one can see that mentality and consciousness have different reference. Therefore, mind too will have a different reference." So he's saying mentality, uh, well, he doesn't say what the reference are, but uh, let's see, does the footnote say the reference? 96? Probably just lists the place in the text, no. Okay. Regarding this distinction between mind and mental factors, a text called Distinguishing the Middle from Extremes, which is uh, another text by Maitreya who is a teacher of Sangha and the 10th stage Bodhisattva, the next Buddha. In that text, Maitreya says that which sees the object is consciousness. What sees its attributes are mental factors. So now we're sort of giving up on Clearly understanding distinctions between the 8th, seven and 6th, we're shifting to the much simpler topic of the distinction of mind and mental factors, which is the topic of the chapter. And uh, uh, given that this is from the Galupa tradition, they may not uh, pursue this 6th, 7th, and 8th issue much further, uh, but we should. So let's let's uh, table that for now. Both the root text and the auto commentary on this statement make this point clear. There are two ways of understanding the referent of the word it in the line its attributes, the mental factors. One is to take it as referring to the mind, that is, attributes of mind. So the phrase was that which sees the object is consciousness, what sees its attributes. Are the mental factors. So one way of taking it is the consciousness and another way of taking it is the objects, right? So one way is to take it as referring to the mind. that is attributes of mind and the other is to read it as referring to the object of the mind. According to the first explanation, mental factors refers to attributes of the main mind. The term main mind refers to any one of the six consciousnesses that is operative in a moment of cognition. is called the main mind, and mental factors are called primary, uh, secondary minds, sorry. My main mind, or in some texts, primary mind. Uh, So, according to the first explanation, mental factors refers to attributes of the main mind, or to attributes of its functions. According to the second reading, mental factors refers not merely to cognizing the object itself, but to cognizing the specific attributes of the object as well. The first interpretation draws the distinction between minds and mental factors, not in terms of their object, but in terms of the cognizing subject's specific functions. It defines mental factors on the basis of the different aspects of the functions of the main mind or consciousness. Consider, for example, a visual consciousness and its concomitant mental factors apprehending a visual form. Here the sense consciousness's mere perception of its object, which is the visible form, constitutes the primary consciousness. The mental factors accompanying it, on the other hand, not only perceive the form, but are each characterized in terms of specific functions, such as turning the mind toward the object, not forgetting an object already cognized, and so on. Therefore, a main mind is a cognizing agent that is characterized only in terms of perceiving its object, without needing to be qualified in terms of something else. And a mental factor is a cognizing agent that perceives the very same object, but engages that object principally by way of different attributes, such as function and so on. So we're gradually getting to the distinction between mind and mental factors, which is that mind cognizes the entity of an object and mental factors, Cognizes the particularities, the different characteristics of an object, right? The mind and its accompanying mental factors are concomitant in sharing five similar features, therefore there is no difference between them insofar so far as both cognize the object itself and its attributes. Nevertheless, the main mind and mental factors other than feeling, such as discernment, experience their object not through their own power, but through the power of that concomitant factor of feeling. Also, the main mind and any mental factors other than discernment distinguish their object not through their own power, but through the power of the factor of discernment. The same applies to all the remaining mental factors. So, feeling and discernment are two mental factors, and the, this these authors are trying to demonstrate or or put forward that uh, the uh, the uh, experience that a mental factor provides is enjoyed by all the other mental factors. So the uh, function that feeling provides is uh, benefited, benefits the activity of other mental factors, and same for discernment and so forth. The same applies to all the remaining mental facts. For example, if the main mind has the aspect of apprehending a pot, the aspects of all its accompanying mental factors, feeling and so forth, as well as any others they may be, are equally that of apprehending the pot and uh, so so actually, what they're getting at here is that the object of a ma- of a main mind and the object of a mental factor are the same so when the when there's a, a cognition of uh, visual uh color and shape resembling what we would call a pot, the mind perceives that object and the mental factors are also in relation to that object. So, the principal object of the mind and the mental factors is the same, and that's the first of five congruencies. congruencies sorry. So the example and the aspect of apprehending the pot, the aspects of all its accompanying mental factors, feeling, discernment, attention, contact, and attention, as well as any others there may be, are equally that of apprehending the pot. Likewise, just as the aspect of the mental factor feeling is that of experiencing an object that is beneficial, harmful, or neutral. So the aspects of the main mind and any other mental factors, such as discernment, attention, faith, which are mental factors and so on, must be that of experiencing the object that is beneficial. So the the object of a main mind and its mental factors are always the same. Harmful or neutral. Sorry, uh, clarifying the meaning of the treasury of knowledge by Osamitra commentary on Vasubandhu's text, and uh, he's also known as Jinaputra. Uh, Let's skip the quote. The second interpretation of the phrase, it, its attributes, the mental factors, going back to the quote from distinguishing the middle from extremes, which was that which sees the object, its consciousness, what sees its attributes, the mental factors. So the second interpretation of the phrase, its attributes, the mental factors, says that the mind cognizes the object itself, such as a visible form, sound, and so on, while the mental factors cognize the object's attributes. The meaning of the object itself and its attributes is as follows. A visible form, for example, is the object itself. That visible form, size, attractiveness, and so on are the object's attributes. So this is the more normal understanding of that quote from Maitreya's text, which is why I've been interpreting this whole discussion in that way. And the first interpretation, in my humble opinion, doesn't really make that much sense. Which is an excuse for why I didn't explain it properly, I guess. So on the next page, 100, likewise the sound is an object itself and its melodiousness or harshness and so on are its attributes. And those are perceived by the mental factors. The six types of consciousness that perceive the object itself are the main minds. The 51 mental factors such as feeling that perceive the object's attributes such as attractiveness or Unattractiveness, the perception of which gives rise to pleasant or unpleasant states, and so on, are mental factors. For example, when the visual consciousness apprehends a visual form, its accompanying feeling apprehends its qualities, such as whether it's beneficial or harmful. Discernment apprehends the object's distinguishing mark, to which various classificatory conventions will be applied. Contact apprehends the form's attributes, such as pleasant or unpleasant, attachment and hatred, apprehended as attractive, unattractive, and so on. So, the authors are giving examples of various mental factors that might be involved in the perception of an object of visual consciousness. The same point applies to the remaining factors and their aspects. Asanga says in his Yogacara Bhumi, Here, any painful, pleasant, or neutral characteristics are cognized by contact. So the mental factor of contact cognizes the um, painful, pleasant, or neutral characteristics. Any beneficial, harmful, or neutral characteristics are cognized by feeling. Uh, He's giving the same function to contact and feeling, or cognized by or cognize. Oh, I see. Painful, pleasant, or neutral is contact, and beneficial, harmful, or neutral is the object of, uh, is is the activity of feeling. That's an interesting distinction. Anyway, we'll come to more thorough uh, explanations of each of the mental factors shortly. And a characteristic that is the distinguishing mark for a classificatory convention is cognized by discernment, which is the third of the object of the omnipresent mental factors, I believe. Thus, according to either of the two explanations, the way in which a single mind has significantly different accompanying mental factors should not be understood in the manner of a king surrounded by an entourage of many different ministers. For in a sutra it says, the consciousness of sentient beings occurs as distinct individual streams of awareness. Also, the exposition of valid cognition says, two conceptual consciousnesses are never observed together. Which apparently are both understood to support the idea that mind and mental factors are in concert, and they have the same object, and they're not different fundamental entities. So to view the mind and its concomitant factors as substantially different would contradict contradict many such passes that occur, recur again and again in the sutras and shastras. One might ask, well then, how does one main mind have diverse accompanying mental factors? When we look at a single flower, for example... We have to posit a gentle, a general, rather, mental experience in relation to it. This basic awareness of the object is the main mind. There is then a feeling that arises simultaneously with it, which experiences a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral sensation, which is different than what was said above in the quote from a Sangha, but never mind. The normal explanation of feeling is that it apprehends or it experiences pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So everything up until this paragraph is confusing and disregarded. discernment distinguishes the attributes of the object such as this is blue or yellow intention moves the mind and the mental factors towards the object just as a magnetic stone moves iron attention directs the mind to a specific object and then several objects of the mind contact causes the mind to encounter the object mindfulness causes the mind to hold the object without forgetting it And concentration causes the mind to stay placed on the object, and so on. So on would include at least the next mental factor of the object determining set, which is understanding. In brief, mind and mental factors must be differentiated and identified in terms of either the functions of the mind or the functions of the attributes of the object. When remembering an object such as a visual form, although both the main mind and its accompanying factor of mindfulness are concomitant in observing the same object, a visual form they engage it differently the main mind does so by cognizing the object itself the visible form whereas mindfulness does so by causing the object not to be lost or forgotten so this is the normal explanation of mind and mental factors and it sort of creates a very simple and straightforward and like clean framework but it it also doesn't totally make sense because it's like it's, it's like saying that the mental factors cognize the object. And how can mental factors cognize an object? Mental factors, they without a mind, a primary mind, can't cognize anything. So it's more like, uh, it, it's a little bit of an odd uh, framework, but it helps to understand the way the mind functions in general, so to speak. And once it's once it's laid out in some more detail, once we get through the first two categories of them, you'll have a, a good idea of the the uh, way this is trying, this is being uh, experience is being modeled or or uh, described, and then we can accept it as like a working uh, basis. Uh, in language and concepts that provides a way of discussing and thinking about experience, and then from that basis you can then uh, discuss its limitations. But it's good to understand the system first. Thus, both of these two explanations accord with the above quoted text from Distinguishing the Middle from the Extremes, as well as Vasubandhu's commentary on that, which says, the mere object is seen by consciousness, the object's attributes are seen by mental factors, such as feeling and so on. To say that the mental factor see is a little bit of an odd thing to say. <laughs> and Stiramati's, uh, so Stiramati was a student of Vasubandhu and uh, he Wrote an additional commentary on that text, sort of commentary on Vasubandhu's commentary, a double layered situation in his text. I will skip the quotes and let's look at the next quote. In the Treasury of Knowledge by Vasubandhu, it says, mind, mentality, and consciousness are synonymous, mind and mental factors are concomitant in sharing the same five features, including basis, object, and aspect. Strangely, he only mentions three of those five features, but for him mind, mentality, and consciousness are synonymous. The defini- Next page 102, the definition of a main mind is a consciousness that is concomitant with its accompanying mental factors in sharing the same five features. When categorized, there are six types of consciousness, from visual to mental. The definition of a mental factor is a cognition that is concomitant with the main mind that accompanies in sharing the same five features. Mind and mental factors are concomitant in sharing the same five features. And here are the features. Mind and mental factors always have the same basis. What is the basis? The basis is the sense consciousness, the sense, fac- uh, sorry, the sense faculty, the basis, right? The same object. They're both they both have the same object, the vase or the pot or whatever. In the example given before, they have the same aspect. So, the aspect is the replication of the outer object in the in the sense uh, um, apparatus, in the sense uh, framework. They have they happen at the same time. They're simultaneous. So. We all know, uh, are familiar with the description by Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche of the aggregates being chronological form, feeling, and discernment or, or uh, perception and then formations or mental factors or concept, he calls it, and then consciousness. And he presents a sequential framework for the aggregates and the aggregates, um, uh, is a way of mapping the mental factors, right? So, 49 of the mental factors appear in the fourth aggregate, or the fourth Skanda. And two of the mental factors are taken out because they're sort of outstanding, let's say, and they're given their own aggregate. So, feeling has its own aggregate, but it is one of the 51 mental factors, and also discernment or perception or um whatever you want to call the third aggregate, is also a mental factor. And Trump Brimashay presents this, these occurring in a sequential fashion. That presentation is, is very unusual. By and large, the, main, the majority of those who describe uh, Abhidharma Describes mind and mental factors as happening simultaneously every moment. Every moment, there's, uh, in a, a, when there's a, a consciousness or a cognition, there's a consciousness being a primary mind, one of the six, accompanied by some uh, grouping of the fifty-one mental factors, and then the object is either a form the first skanda, or the object is a concept, a non-associated formation, or the mental, or the object of that moment of cognition, is a mental factor, such as an emotion, right? As we saw in the the, uh, diagram by Peter. And so everybody else, Almost everybody else in the world of Abhidharma presents the mind and mental factors, or the skandhas as happening uh, uh, simultaneously, all at the same time, okay? So we have same time as the force, congruency or concomitance, and then same substance, the substance is the mental faculty. They share the same basis in that a main mind and its accompanying mental factors are both based on the same sense faculty. For whatever sense faculty or dominant condition, the main mind is based on any mental factors accompanying it are also based on that visual, mental, uh, smell, gustatory, whatever. They share the same object in that they observe the same... uh, observed object. For whatever object the mind observes, any mental factors accompanying it also observe that they share the same aspect and that their way of holding the object is the same. Which is an interesting way of describing what I'm describing as the replication of the object in the sense uh, system. Let's see. Uh, Let's see, Uh, for whatever aspect of the object the mind arises having, that's sort of clunky, for whatever aspect of the object the mind arises having, any mental factors accompanying it also arise having that aspect of the object. Thus they have the same aspect or way of holding, they share the same time and that they arise at the same time. For a mind and any mental factors accompany it both arise, abide, and cease together, thus they have the same duration, they have the same substance, and that both the mind and any mental factors accompany it arise only as a single substance. For in the case of one main mind, there is but one accompanying feeling, one discernment, and so on. Thus the main mind and its accompanying mental factors are the same in being a single substance." That was a little odd because... We're in the realm of mind, and they're saying that they're all mind. And it's sort of like, you already told me that because they're mind. But anyway. Consider, for example, an instant of visual consciousness and its accompanying factor of feeling. If the visual consciousness is based on its dominant condition of the visual sense faculty. So the word dominant condition refers to the sense base. In this case, the sense base is the visual sense faculty. If the visual consciousness observes an object that is a visual form, oh, sorry, a visible form, then its accompanying feeling also observes that form, which again is a little bit weird because the visual consciousness can only have a visible form as its this object. But if the visual consciousness arises having an appearance of blue, then its accompanying feeling also arises having an appearance of blue. And they're using feeling, they named feeling as an example of the 51 mental factors. And the other mental factors would be the same. Uh, when a visual consciousness arises, its accompanying feeling arises at the same time. And since a visual consciousness is a single substance, its accompanied feeling also arises just as a single substance. Now, that implies that they could be separate single substances, but uh, it's not a correct implication. They are the same single substance, which is the visual consciousness. So every primary mind, and there are six of them, arises with a combination of many mental factors. They arise at the same time, they have the same sense space, either one through six. They have the same object, they experience the same aspect and what did i leave out the same time
2: time and substance
0: time and substance thank you okay derek yes
2: I, i get a little confused about the word feeling
0: yeah so feeling is one of the 51 mental factors and we're just about to define each one of them so it would the easiest thing would be if you can hold that thought and when we get to it let's talk about feeling. Okay. And uh the the initial confusion is that we're not talking about feeling as in feelings the way we talk about feelings in the English language which would be sort of emotions. Mm. Here we're just talking about bare sensation. And that's really like in the mindfulness, in the four foundations of mindfulness, the second one traditionally is mindfulness of feeling.
2: I never <laughs> understood that. <laughs> and there, it's,
0: it's not emotions, it's just the sensation, and it's what connects form, the body, to um, the mind, which is the third foundation. Okay. So it's sort of building up from There's the the form, which is the body, mindfulness of body, and then there's mindfulness of feeling, which is how we experience form, and then there's mindfulness of mind, which is what experiences form. And um, so form is sensation, and in the foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha has identified form as being the sort of representative of all the other mental factors, basically.
2: Did you mean feeling? You just said form.
0: Thank you. I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank okay, you. Okay, I meant feeling. <laughs> all right. just feeling as representative of the, all the others. Okay. All right. Thanks. Um, so then he gives a quote, and I'm going to skip this quote. which basically just repeats what we went through, and then a Sangha's quote. Okay, let's go through that briefly. A Sangha's Compendium of Knowledge, which is his version of the Abhidharma, it's called the Abhidharma Samachaya, it's the higher Abhidharma we saw it referred to earlier as the main source for this presentation of the uh, Knowing the Nature of the Mind text or volume. Someone, suppose someone asks, what is it to be concomitant in the sense of cognizing in conjunction? So somebody's asking, what does it mean that the mind and mental factors are concomitant in the sense of cognizing in conjunction? And the answer is the phenomenon of mind and mental factors cognize in conjunction with regard to the same object. And this concomitance by way of cognizing in conjunction involves what is different not what is identical, and a concordant pair, not a discordant pair. Oh, this gets very complicated. Let's skip that. (laughs) Wow, what is he talking about? Not two incongruent times. A concordant pair, not a discordant pair, involves what is different, not identical. That's the weird one. Congruent times, not incongruent times, and concordant realms and levels. So most of them make sense. Anyway, skipping that, mind and mental factors are concomitant in sharing the same substance, same objects, same nature, same time, and same realms and levels. So the way in which shared features are characterized here is slightly different from the way in which they were described earlier, based on the quote from that text and its associated commentaries, as well as Vasubandhu's Treasury of Knowledge. And they're, they're saying that in that quote, there's the implication that it could be understood in two ways. And here they're simplifying it in this way. The sameness of substance as well as the sameness of time are are stated in this excerpt from the Compendium of Knowledge. As stated in this excerpt from the Compendium of Knowledge, are just like the ones explained earlier. Furthermore, given that a mind and its accompanying mental factors apprehend by way of observing an object, such as a visible form, they have the same object, same nature, it means that if the main mind is afflictive, then its accompanying mental factors will be afflictive. And if the main mind is a virtuous awareness, then its accompanying mental factors will be virtuous, same realm and level. Okay, so I, I missed something just here. So going back one paragraph right after the quote, it says, mind and mental factors are concomitant in sharing the same substance, object, nature, time, and realms. And levels. So that's different than what was listed earlier. Earlier, the five features were Basis, Object, Aspect, Time, and Substance. And now they're adding a different slant, which is they've added Nature is different, and then Realms and Levels is different. And Nature gets into this whole idea that if the, uh, that the, uh, as they explain it, um, below in the next paragraph they say, same nature. So it's, it's, uh, five lines into that next paragraph. It says, same nature means that if the main mind is afflictive, then its accompanying mental factors will be afflictive. So you can't have a mix of like positive and negative mental factors in a moment of cognition. All the mental factors have to be either neutral or one or the other of afflictive or, or not afflictive. Um, and if the main mind in a virtu- is a virtuous awareness, then its accompanying mental factors will be virtuous. Same realm and level means that there will never arise a mind of the desire realm accompanied by mental factors of the form realm. So they will all be in the same ballpark. <laughs> of samsara, or a mind of the first absorption accompanied by mental factors, or the second absorption and such, like, which is sort of an unnecessary thing to say, but anyway, for whatever realm and level the main mind mind may be, the realm and level of its accompanying mental factors are the same. This text lists same nature and same realm and level, which are not listed among the five similar features in Vasa Treasury of Knowledge. I'm going to skip the quote that explained these and go onward, and he he goes through um, an, an objection with Sangha's response to that, which I'll skip, and then I'll go to the explanatory paragraph after that that starts with what these statements mean is as follows. For example, It is in terms of a visible form appearing that a visual consciousness apprehending a form satisfies the criterion of being a mind merely because it perceives the form. Its accompanying intention or such like an intention is a mental factor and the phrase or such like indicates other mental factors does not satisfy the criterion of mental factor merely because of that. Rather, one must explain that it is in terms of its other attributes. So, um, the main mind, in the second sentence of this paragraph, for example, it is in terms of a visible form appearing that a visual consciousness apprehending a a form satisfies the criterion of mind. So mind just apprehends form. And um, skipping to the bottom of that page, rather, one must explain that as in terms of the other attributes that a mind is moved toward an object. And that is what these treatises mean. They do not mean that a mind and its accompanying mental factors do not have the same aspect in general. According to the Sautrantic school above, which means Chittamatra Madhyamaka, main mind and its accompanying mental factors are the same substance but conceptually distinct. We can talk about them differently. We can conceptualize them as different. These schools also explain that the mental factors accompanying one main mind are reciprocally the same substance, while the mental factors accompanying one main mind are mutually concomitant and share the the same five features, those those five similarities. They differ in the relative strength of their function, for example. A person with a very strong mental factor of faith is known as someone with faith. A person with a very strong aspiration is known as someone with purpose. A person with a very strong mindfulness is known as someone with mindful awareness. A person with a very strong c- concentration is known as someone with mental stability. It's a totally weird explanation here. So skipping to the next paragraph, the mental factors, literally uh, the, the uh, term in Tibetan is sem jung, and sem is mind, and jung is what arises from mind. So the the authors say the mental factors, which in Tibetan the term literally means arisen from mind or born from mind, are so-called because they are transformations of the mind or they arise from the mind as individual parts, just as waves arise from the body of water. And here they're struggling to explain how mind and mental factors can be the same in so many ways and yet be distinguishable. So, waves and water. So the the, uh, water is the mind and the waves are the different aspects of that mind, of that primary mind. If there were no mental factor of feeling accompanying the mind, it could not function to experience an object. And if there were no intention, It could not function to move the mind toward the object. The mind itself definitely has to arise simultaneously with its accompanying mental factors in every case and cannot do so otherwise, do so without them. Mind and mental factors are definitely simultaneous. So that was a very laborious and labored and weird description of the similarities of mind and mental factors. The difference it seems in like
1: they're um while they're breaking it down and describing what's going on at the same time they're saying from the perspective of the observer so so they keep going back and forth like this is how it appears to us as the observer of an object but we're taking it apart at the same time as if we're a third person, it just keeps, yeah.
0: Yeah, they they made it very complicated. It would have been much better if they had given like a simple explanation and had given like alternative takes on that instead of mixing them as they went through it. I agree. Anyway. Let's go through the next section the 51 mental factors presented in the song is compendium of knowledge presentations of the mental factors come from Abhidharma treatises such as the great explanation and the great explanation in sanskrit is the mahavibhasha and it's a text compiled by um, vibhashikas and it's their source text and it's a, a vibhashika Uh, Abhidharma text, and I've never seen any of it in English, but apparently it's like a huge, just uh, hodgepodge of a lot of different texts about Abhidharma, not by the Buddha. Uh, These presentations are in turn based on earlier Abhidharma texts, such as the attainment of knowledge, the topic divisions, and compendium of elements, which are attributed to the Buddha which are included among the seven canonical scriptures of the Abhidharma. So the Mahavibhasha is the first attempt to explain the seven Abhidharma texts. Here will we present the topic of mental factors based primarily on the two most famous treatises on the Abhidharma, the Compendium of Knowledge by Sangha, which is Abhidharma Samachaya, and the Treasury of Knowledge by Vasubandha Abhidharma Kosha, which are grounded in these great Earlier Abhidharma texts in the presentation of the five aggregates in a song's compendium, the definition and function of the aggregate of feeling and of the aggregate of discernment are presented separately. Then, the aggregate of conditioning factors, which is the fourth aggregate, is divided into two categories the aggregate of conditioning factors that are concomitant with the mind, and the aggregate of conditioning factors that are not concomitant with the mind. And uh, thus, we get the distinction that we went through in the last course of the non-associated formations, which, formations being a translation of the force, the name of the fourth aggregate. Uh, Then in the context of explaining the aggregate of conditioning factors concomitant with the mind, this text presents the rest of the mental factors listed as 51 in number. When we wonder, do the 51 mental factors listed here in this text encompass all mental factors? As will be explained in a later section, there are many mental factors listed in a text called finer points of discipline, such as offensive instigation, which impels movement and body of speech, or speech as in scowling, (laughs) discouragement. So in other words, this is a a long, drawn-out explanation of... Are these 51 mental factors said to be exhaustive? No, there's others that are not included here. It's said to be representative of the main, most important mental factors of the various types. The other thing that they just said is that the mental factors are not the entirety of the fourth aggregate. The fourth aggregate also includes the non-associated formations, which had things like uh, birth, subsiding and destruction and time and letters and words and life force and so forth if you remember the non-associated formations was that odd category that had all sorts of weird things in it that were that sort of function as powers uh, or ways that the other dharmas interact or act. Uh, let's see. Um, so at the end of that list of factors that don't appear in the 51, the next sentence says, furthermore, song is a Compendium of Bases, Nagarjuna's precious, precious, Garland, and many other texts present several that are not included among those enumerated in the list of 51 that are in the Compendium of knowledge, Abhidhamur Samachaya. This point is acknowledged in some of the classical commentaries on that text, but since it's this presentation of 51 mental factors in that text is quite well known, we will provide a fairly extensive explanation of it here. The 51 mental factors are grouped in several different categories. So there's other versions of mental factors. Asanga's turns out to be the most famous and uh, those of you that do Vajrayana practice might have run into, um, the 51 mental factors being referred to in Vajrayana practices. Uh, so it's, it's the one that seems to have survived through the uh, evolutions of the Dharma from the Mahayana, from the Abhidharma to the Mahayana to the Vajrayana, and thus that's the one they're going to use here. The, the understanding of the different categories is probably the most helpful thing as opposed to the individual mental factors that make up the categories. So the first category is omnipresent mental factors.
2: Derek, I think you <sighs> Sorry.
0: I just muted myself, (laughs) sorry. Uh, So, first is the omnipresent mental factors, meaning that they're present in every moment of mind. This set of five are are present with every type of mind in every moment of mind. The second category is mental factors with a determinate object. So, uh, this is a little bit of an oddity because it literally says that every moment of mind that has an object has these additional five mental factors, which begs the question, well, are there mind moments without objects? And it's very difficult to come up with mind, that's type of mind that does not have an object. <laughs> so let's see how they how they deal with that oddity. And then we have so-called positive mental factors here called virtuous ones, eleven in number. Then we have two sets of negative mental factors. We have the six root mental afflictions or kleshas, and then we have twenty secondary ones. And then we have what are called variable mental factors, and there's four of them. Variable meaning mean that they go both ways, both uh, positive and negative, or virtuous and uh, afflictive. They can be either. The omnipresent mental factors contains feeling, discernment, uh, skandhas two and three, intention, attention, and contact. So the Buddha pulled out those first uh, two. Well, when the, in the time of the Buddha, this list did not exist. This 51 list did not exist. So it's the other way around. So a Sangha took... Skandas 2 and 3 and made them the first two of the 51 mental factors, in particular, the first of the omnipresent ones. Feeling, discernment, intention, attention, and contact. Feeling experiences any of the three, ple- pleasure, pain, or neutral feeling as its object. So just that bare uh, uh, reaction to a phenomena, to an object either positive or negative or neutral, that first flash of reactivity is feeling. Like going toward, going away from something, or not caring. And let's see, discernment distinguishes the attributes of the object, such as this is blue and that is yellow. So it has a quality of categorizing phenomena intention moves the mind and mental factors towards the object so uh this this um doesn't really mean that let's say that it moves the head to look at something it sounds almost that way but it doesn't really mean that way it means that um in the cognitive framework of um, moments of cognition, which are very fleeting and very fast, and there's many of them in a second, um, is, uh, what is it that makes the mind, um, cognizant of a particular experience that is going on. So as we know, we have these five senses and they're operative all the time. So they're all potentially ready to be conscious of their objects at any time. So how does the mind uh, end up experiencing one or another of those sensory objects or a mental consciousness at any one moment, as opposed to any other of the zillions of possible objects that could be experienced and the explanation is was there's well there's some mental factor that somehow uh focuses the mental fact faculty on the object so it's sort of like feeling uh has it has a sort of non-conceptual reactivity or tone, a feeling tone, to uh, the cognitive experience, and then um, discernment identifies what it is, so to speak, the object, and then intention. um, Intention uh, um, sort of harnesses the focus of the mind on that object and leads the mind to investigate that object. And like many of these uh, frameworks and these descriptions of how things work, this one also falls apart if you analyze it very carefully. So they're sort of general, they're they're like a a way of understanding experience. contact causes the mind and object to meet. So the mind itself does not meet with objects uh, unless they're internal, unless they're mental objects. And so we can say the meeting of a mind with an object, which implies that there's a plethora of mental objects floating around in the mind and somehow the mind in any one moment meets one of those objects as opposed to other ones. You know, like why do we think of like if you're going to give an example of an object and let's see chris give an example of an object real quick any object in the universe someone else you're muted a pillow a pillow, a pillow. thank you <laughs> so your mind somehow met that object in its cognitive world and so that's one example you know of a, of a conceptual object and then there's non-conceptual objects of the senses. And uh, meaning that um, this is not, I believe this is not the physical contact of the sense organ with the object. The sense organ and the object are are already in contact, but this is the mind makes contact with the, uh, the representation of the outer object and the sense faculty. So like visual forms, visual uh, colors and shapes are constantly uh, what you might call impinging on our visual sense faculty. And uh, when we decide to look at something, the mind moves towards it, it's intended by this intent, this factor called intention, and then it contacts the aspect of that particular visual object within the visual sense faculty, if that makes any sense. So, cause the mind and object to meet attention directs the mind to a specific object. Now, it sounded like that already happened, but supposedly in this system, uh, the, uh, the experience, so to speak, was not specific enough in intention and contact, it was sort of general, and then attention directs you to a specific part or aspect of an object. I guess. The verse summary reads, feeling, discernment, attention, contact, and attention are called omnipresent. First, the defi- definition of feeling is a mental factor that, by its own power, experiences any type of pleasure, pain, or neutral feeling. The compendium says, what is the definition of feeling It has a characteristic of experience? And, you know, this maybe helps us understand how Trungpa Rinpoche instead of saying mindfulness of feeling he said mindfulness of life or livelihood or liveliness and did actually explain it as experience when categorized there are three types of feeling pleasure pain equanimity or they can be divided into two types physical and mental according to the first wave categorizing when a consciousness accompanied by a feeling engages an object it experiences pleasure pain or equanimity, which is neither pleasure nor pain, according to the second way of categorizing feelings as being either mental or physical, that accompanying, uh, that accompanies sense consciousness are called... Feelings that accompany sense consciousness are called physical, whereas feelings that accompany mental consciousness are called mental. Uh, Arya Davis says, just as tactile as sense faculty pervades the whole body, delusion dwells within all mental factors. Did I read the right quote? <laughs> Where did we get to delusion? Uh, the stent, tactile sense faculty pervades all parts of the body, the crown of the head to the soles of the feet. So any feelings accompanying the other four sense consciousnesses, such as the visual consciousness, are physical feelings. Additionally, there is a way of categorizing feelings as five, five pleasant, unpleasant. Sorry, pleasant physical, unpleasant physical, pleasant mental, unpleasant mental, and neutral feeling. So neutral wasn't physical or mental, strangely. Uh, I've seen presentations where they have uh, neutral. uh, It's one or the other that has neutral, and I can't remember which. And then they say the other one never has a neutral feeling, the other one. Always has either a positive or negative. Anyway, uh, some of these are like the uh, uh, definition of matter that we saw in the first volume as being that which is suitable to be called matter. The definition of discernment is a mental factor that by its own power apprehends the distinguishing mark of its object. The phrase apprehends the distinguishing mark means to not mix up the distinguishing characteristics or fine distinctions of an object. Um, Regarding this, the compendium says, what is the definition of discernment? That which has the essential nature of either apprehending a distinguishing mark or apprehending a mental image through which a convention is applied to the objects of seeing, hearing, differentiating, and understanding. Um, That's a funny one. That which has the essential nature of either apprehending a distinguishing mark, that makes sense, such as blue or yellow, or apprehending a mental image through which a convention is applied to the objects of seeing, hearing, differentiating, understanding. That's a little hard to understand. When categorized, discernment has two divisions. So this is the third skanda. The third skanda is said to have two parts. Discernment that apprehends a distinguishing mark and discernment that apprehends images. I see. Let's see how they explain that. Uh, The first is discernment accompanying any of the five sense consciousnesses that apprehends objects such as blue and yellow without mixing them up. The second is discernment accompanying a mental consciousness that apprehends thoughts such as, this is blue. And this is yellow, without mixing up this classificatory conventions. So, um, without it being too confusing, we've gone from a non—we've uh, gone from a, a non—let's say non-verbal, non-conceptual uh, distinguishing of characteristics to what seems to be a conceptual labeling of the characteristics. And um, it's an oddity in that I've never seen anybody explain this adequately to, to like, uh, to take into consideration, well, has conceptuality just kicked in here? And how does this relate to the definition of conceptuality being Uh, when the when a mental consciousness has a conceptual object as opposed to when it has a non-conceptual object so um this is uh, a confusing distinction and definition but um i'm sorry
2: (laughs) it it, it seems like it could i don't know that much about this but it seems like on one hand, there's the discernment that's actually like the sensory experience, the ability to know blue from yellow in the sensory sense of the word, of the experience, sorry. Whereas the other one is more being able to sort out the concept of blue and yellow.
0: I- and you use the word concept. But, you know, theoretically, we're not yet in the realm of conceptual cognition
2: in this in discernment yeah okay all right and i thought that when we're label, i thought discernment included sort of labeling
0: well that's that's the way we've learned to to understand the third skanda as having these two aspects that it like bridges between non-conceptual distinctions and then the conceptual labeling but yeah. how does that relate to the classification of conceptual consciousness as having a conceptual object did we just shift to having a conceptual object in this there's no acknowledgement of that
2: well i guess i was thinking when it says a mental consciousness that apprehends thoughts then i thought we were in the conceptual there i'm i could be wrong
0: I guess, but it's it's presented as two parts of that skanda, and so uh, that would say that the second part only happens when there's a conceptual consciousness. So we could, I'll go, I'll go with that. So that uh, if it's a conceptual consciousness, then it has the second part of dis- discernment, and if it's a non-conceptual consciousness, it only has the first part. You would think they would like say something about that, though. It's sort of odd that they don't acknowledge that there's this whole issue of conceptuality that they just broached.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it does. It's not a great explanation, but that's the best that way that I could. It does.
0: It, it does certainly appear to be that way. I would concur with you. I would be in congruence and concomitance with you. <laughs> If,
1: can I can I yes. add one? Because I think this is an interesting point. But if these are omnipresent, then they do all appear on every moment of conceptual cognition. So we should always be thinking them in that classification too. And I guess this is just sort of pointing that out. Like, isn't that obvious?
0: But but, but wait, what about the opposite? If they're if they're omnipresent, then they occur in every moment of non-conceptual cognition.
1: But it it did, it just didn't quite spell. It did mention that, didn't it? It said. I think that's the whole
2: point, actually, that that there's that's why there's these two flavors of it, one for the conceptual and one for the non conceptual.
1: Right. That's what I'm agreeing with and saying, yeah, they have to be there for everything.
0: They they both have to be there for every cognition, even a non-conceptual one.
2: What well, one or the uh, one of the two flavors of it have to be there. It's like A or B, you know. Which number of is this? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's the way that it's explained you would think that they would say in the context of a non-conceptual cognition this is the bare recognition of the distinction distinguishing marks of an object such as blue and yellow in the context of a conceptual cognition this is the identification the, the mental classification or conceptual classification of a generally character you know something like that you would think they would like acknowledge that and explain that but anyway On what basis do these two types of discernment operate? Of the four of seen and so on, (laughs) Um, which I guess of the four sense consciousnesses of seen and so on. Seen refers to applying a classificatory convention to things seen directly. Directly usually means non-conceptual. Hearing refers to applying a classificatory convention to trustworthy words heard. (laughs) Differentiating refers to applying a classificatory convention to things ascertained in dependence on evidence. And understanding refers to applying a classificatory convention through discernment to things ascertained directly. According to the explanatory commentators on Abhidharma, this applies to what is seen by the ear, heard by the ear, understood by the mind, and differentiated by the three, nose, tongue, and bodily sensation. If that isn't a weird paragraph, I don't know what it (laughs) is. It's amazing that they've taken what is normally presented in such a simple and clean way and made it so confusing. I must say it's admirable, but disappointing. (laughs) Third, the definition of intention, the next mental factor, is a mental factor that moves and incites the mind with which it is concomitant toward the object. Accordingly, the compendium says, what is intention is a mental factor, sorry, a mental action that actually conditions the mind. It has the function of making the mind engage in virtuous, non-virtuous, or neutral actions. The compendium of ascertainment says, what function does intention have? It has the function of motivating actions of thought, body, and speech, for example. Just as a magnet moves iron, it's mental factors' abilities to make the mind or any of its mental factors engage the object. No comment when categorized in terms of the sense faculties which are the basis there are six ranging from an attention that arises from contact involving the sen- visual sense faculty to an intention that arises from contact involving the mental sense faculty from among the, the two types of action action that is intention and action that is intended it's this very unusual and it, reminiscent of the definition of karma as being intention and intendedness. Action that is intention refers to an intention that is concomitant with the mental consciousness it accompanies. And an action, a body or speech motivated by that is called action that is intended. and This is the way karma is normally described. Treasury says action is intention and what is done by it, intention is an action of mind, actions of body and speech are produced by it. So the mind intends and the body and speech act. Kirti also speaks about this distinction. Fourth, the definition of attention is a mental factor. That by its own power directs the mind with which it is concomitant to a particular object. The difference between this and intention is that intention moves the mind with which it is concomitant toward a general object, and attention directs the mind toward a particular object. (laughs) It's just not a big difference. (laughs) Compendium says, what is attention? It's a mental engagement. It has the function of mentally apprehending the object that adds a little bit more over intention i guess fifth the definition of contact is a mental factor that once the object the sense faculty and the sense consciousness have come together by its own power selects an object in accord with whatever feeling of pleasure and so on is to be experienced the phrase selects an object" an object means to select a particular object as its own unique object, once the object, sense-faculty, and sense-consciousness, have come together. Which sort of implies that there's potentially numerous possible objects in that coming together. But the phrase, the object, the sense-faculty, and the sense-consciousness have come together, does not indicate that they have come together at exactly the same time. For the sense-faculty, which is the dominant condition, and the sense-consciousness, which is based on it, are sequential and not simultaneous. So the uh, sense-faculty encounters the object and from that arises the sense-consciousness, technically in, a, in the moment after the object and the faculty meet. Um, thus the phrase, have, have come together refers to the three conditions, the object, sense, faculty, and consciousness being complete. Compendium says what is contact, it is what determines transformation of the sense faculty. Once the three have come together, it functions as the basis of feeling. (laughs) Now, it functions as the basis of feeling, which was the the first uh, mental factor in this group. The basis, when categorized, has six types from contact, when the visual sense faculty and so on, have come together to contact with the mental, mind sense faculty and so on, have come together. The reason that the five mental factors, feeling and so on, are called omnipresence because they accompany every cognitive moment or event. Indeed, if any of the five omnipresent mental factors were lacking for a mental state, then the object could not be fully experienced. Were there no feeling, there would simply be no experience. Were there no discernment, it would be impossible to apprehend the unique distinguishing characteristics of the object, or to differentiate the object's attributes. Were there no intention, there would be no moving toward an object. Were there no attention, there would be no directing toward a particular object. And were there no contact, there would be no meeting with the object. So for the mind to engage an object, the five omnipresent mental factors must be fully present. So I guess we have to stop. We haven't been making it very far. But um, briefly, just to um, revisit our discussion about discernment as having two parts. This last section says, were there no discernment, it would be impossible to apprehend the unique, distinguishing characteristics of the object, or to differentiate the object's attributes. So, to alternative, the word OR implies that they are alternatives, which would, I guess, support the idea that One happens in the case of a non-conceptual cognition and the other happens in the case of a conceptual, potentially. So, uh, then we have determinate, uh, the mental factors with a determinate object and then we have the virtuous, unvirtuous and so forth, which can be a little tedious, it's just like lists of uh terms that get defined uh but it's helpful to go through them and we'll go through them more quickly than we have been and then based upon that we can then pull things together or the the authors pull things together and talk a little bit more about how mind functions in an interesting way so any comments or questions or suggestions or announcements or anything. I guess we'll call it a wrap. Let's dedicate. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy, wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the Golden Sun of the Great East. May the Lotus Garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. did everybody see the announcement from the Chögyam Trungpa Institute where they put out the uh, digital archive of uh, some 160 talks by Trunk Boucher that were not available beforehand no some no's okay so I will circulate so that, that means
1: we could write our own Trungpa books
0: yes you can it's <laughs> now it's open open uh, season open season for that <laughs> I'll try to remember to circulate that thank you everyone nice to see you And take care and hope to see you next week. Thanks, Derek.
2: Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye, everybody.